The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. My name is uh, Azar Alden, and I'm part of the part of the church family at White Ridge Baptist. And uh, once in a while, it's a privilege to bring God's word uh, to our church family here. Uh, many of us were called upon uh, to do that. Steve Morris last Sunday, myself, David Pollandine, Tim Noble. We take this this task with great joy and and we consider it a great responsibility uh, to stand in this spot and be able to bring God's word to to those who are in hearing. I've also been told this morning that uh, we have a number of uh, people from our sister churches joining us for this service as well and uh, we wanna welcome you to to this worship as well. We've already been blessed tremendously through the songs that we've sung and through the prayer time that we've spent in, and I trust that uh, the Lord's going to continue to bless us uh, through, through the rest of this morning. Uh, it was only a couple of Sundays ago I was here, and I shared a dream about walking up to the pulpit as the whole, se- whole auditorium was emptying out. And, and I, I, in my dream, I saw that uh, Armand Kelm and Trudy Padzer and, and, and Marilyn Parker stayed behind, and they encouraged me by saying, you know, even if everyone leaves, we will be here to encourage you. And now here I am looking at a, a, an empty auditorium almost. There's about seven or eight people. And, uh, and you know, the interesting thing about the whole experience is that two Sundays ago, when the auditorium was full, I felt I was in church. I was part of the church. I was with the church. And then last Sunday, when this room was empty and there was about 10 people, and today, when there's about seven people, it still feels the same. The room is empty, but the church is present. And, and I, I trust that that's your experience as well. You know, there's a cliche saying that Christians love to say, the church is not about the building, right? And, and it's been proven true over the last uh, couple of Sundays. The church is still God's people coming together and worshiping him. And, uh, and I pray that uh, collectively we pray that this period of isolation is going to be short and it will give us chance to come back together and worship together. I'm here this morning because uh, Pastor Terry, as Pastor Kevin mentioned, uh, along with the rest of the Bolivia team, is in self-isolation and, um, and we are, we're anxious to have him back in the pulpit, I, I'm sure, as he is anxious to be back uh, here as well. This, this is an unprecedented time in the life of our church. Um, for sure, there, I think I'm gonna put up a couple of pictures on the, on, on the background here. The picture on the top right side, uh, I took that on Monday afternoon at about four o'clock, or top, uh, top right, or actually top left, sorry. Uh, that's the food court at City Place. And normally at lunchtime, there are hundreds of people in this space, maybe a few thousand go through that place over the lunch hour. And at about four o'clock when I'm leaving work, uh, there's still probably 100, 150 people just milling about, hanging out. But Monday when I, when I was coming home, the place had been cleared out. It was completely empty. And I also found a picture of, that someone else had taken of uh, Portage and Maine. And that's during the daytime. You know, normally there are hundreds of cars going through that intersection at any given moment, thousands through the day. And that's what it looked like. And things like that, scenes like this, empty streets, empty office buildings, uh, empty corridors, they can create uncertainty for us. 
Um, that, that's a given. We feel that we're not in control of our circumstances. We feel we have no control over our surroundings. And so this uncertainty creates anxiety for us. We've already talked about that earlier this morning. These are natural responses to natural circumstances. And yet, as God's people, we have a supernatural response as well. We, as God's children, have an absolute certainty that God is sovereign over everything. There is nothing that surprises him. There is nothing that catches him off guard. There is nothing that happens without his permission. There is nothing, not even a leaf on a tree, that falls without his knowledge. He is omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God has given us the privilege to call him Father. And for those of us who do that, he holds each one of us in the palm of his hand. And so while we are surrounded by, by a world that is gripped in fear and uncertainty, may we, may, may God's people find shalom, Pastor Ralph's favorite word, shalom, peace in the eye of the storm. And we find that shalom when we take comfort, when we seek shelter, and when we receive rest in our God. Amen. Well, this past week I got a bit of a taste as well of uh, what it feels like to be a pastor producing a sermon with a four or five day timeline. Time and, uh, and it gave me a new appreciation for men who do it week after week for their churches that they are accountable for. So I have a newfound respect for, uh, for pastors and sermon prep. But in all sermon prep, we believe, we trust that the Holy Spirit is leading us, and I believe the message we have this morning is directed by the Holy Spirit. We're gonna look at, um, we're gonna look at the life of Abraham and Sarah, uh, just a very small snippet of their life that's found in chapter 16. Uh, for those of you who are who are new or who are just tuning in. We've been in the study of the book of Genesis since September, and we're about to hit chapter 16 this morning. God uh, promised Abram, last week Steve Morris talked about uh, chapter 15, and in that chapter, God promises Abram that he is going to give him an heir, a son through whom all the nations will be blessed. It is a promise that is not possible in the physical realm. A 75-year-old man who is promised an heir, a biological child, a child that is born to a wife who is barren and well past her years of childbearing. But the promise that is made is truly of cosmic proportions. Genesis 15:5 says that God, the Lord brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to. And then he said to him, the Lord said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. This is a God-sized promise that is given to Abraham. The possibility, the scope, the magnitude of this promise is outside the realm of human ability. And then the next verse says that Abraham believes the Lord, and this is counted to him as righteousness. That is an amazing way to end chapter 15. Let's see what chapter 16 tells us. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 16, Genesis. 
It is our tradition to stand when we read the Word of God. Uh, I trust that you have reverence for the Word of God and you'll, you'll hear these words with that reverence. Chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And she said, Hagar, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now a child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. May the Lord bless his word. This morning we're gonna look primarily at Abraham and Sarah's disobedience of God and his promise. But before we get there, I just want to share very briefly with you a couple of things about Hagar. Hagar was Sarah's Egyptian maidservant. She was most likely given to Abraham's household when they were passing through Egypt the last time, and Abraham and Sarah, in their wisdom, decided that they were going to tell everyone that they were brother and sister. Now, there was a very cultural reason for that. Uh, in the old days, if a powerful man wanted to take your wife as his wife, all he had to do was kill the husband, and he could take the woman to be his wife. But if the woman was unmarried, then you had to ask for the father or the brother's permission to marry her. So Abraham and Sarah decided that in order to keep Abraham safe, they were going to lie and tell everyone that they were brother and sister. The king takes Sarah to his house, but the Lord intervenes and he sends plagues on the king's household. And finally, when the king realizes that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife, he is royally upset and sends Sarah back to Abraham, but he also gives Abraham a lot of gifts. And some of those gifts are slaves, Egyptian slaves. So it is very much possible that Hagar was part of that group of Egyptians that were given to Abraham. That was 10 years ago, over 10 years ago. And over the last 10 years, it seems that Hagar has risen through the ranks and she is now one of Sarah's maidservants. And now, she's been asked to be a childbearer for her mistress. The Bible says that when she was pregnant, 
uh, she began to despise her mistress, which would be a very normal reaction. A slave rises through the ranks. Now she's told that she's going to be the wife of the master and bear, her chi bear his child. But Sarah feels threatened by this and blames Abraham for the injustice that is being done against her. You know, I'm, I'm kind of with, with Sarah on this one. Abraham should bear the burden of this, this situation. He is the spiritual head of his home. He is given the responsibility to lead his family in God's way. So when Sarah proposed to him to have a child with, with their maidservant, with Hagar, he should have stood his ground and reminded Sarah of God's faithfulness to them, but he did not. He should have reminded her of God's promise to them, but he did not. He should have stood his ground and defended the sanctity of their marriage covenant, but he did not. He did not honor Sarah. He did not honor Hagar. He did not honor his marriage covenant, and he certainly did not honor the Lord in doing that. So after Hagar conceives, there is tension between the two women, and Abram wants to keep his hands off the whole situation, tells Sarah, look, or go do whatever you want to do with your maidservant. She's your maidservant. So Sarah mistreats Hagar to the point that she, she flees, she runs away. And here is one of the most remarkable things that happens. This Egyptian girl who is pregnant is visited by an angel of the Lord. She's feeling de distressed, she's depressed, uh, she's been uh, devalued in many ways, but an angel shows up. And now majority of the scholars that I've had a chance to read about believe that this angel is in fact pre-incarnate Christ. And that's based on the conversation, the promise, the wording of the promise that the angel gives Hagar, and then the way Hagar responds to him. So God comes to this young woman, and he calls her by her name. You know, if we just read the chapter, and if you noticed, Sarah and Abraham do not use Hagar's name. When they're talking about her, they talk about the maidservant. They do not address her by her name. They call her by her role in the household, by the job title that she has, what she does, not who she is. But when God comes to her in this time of distress, he doesn't call her by her title, her role, her job description. He calls her by her name. Hagar, in God's eyes, is not a nobody. She is a somebody. She has an identity, she has a name, and God knows her name. And even though she's been given away as a possession, even though she's been used and misused and abused and mistreated, God sees her for who she is. We've talked about this through, throughout the entire series of Genesis, Imago Dei. God looks at Hagar and he sees his image in her, and he comes down and comforts her. And then he gives her this promised name. He calls her son Ishmael. Ishmael, which is a combination of two words, Shama, which, which means hears, and El, of course, the name for God, the God who hears. Imagine yourself in Hagar's shoes. You're distressed, you're depressed, and God comes and tells you, the son you're about to bear, I want his name to be the God who hears. 
And so for the rest of her life, I think, every time Hagar called her son Ishmael, Ishmael, she was reminded of the time when God showed up and God heard her. And in that instance, we see this veil dropping off her eyes and she confesses, she makes a bold confession in, in the scriptures, which says, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. The God who saw Hagar is the one who sees you. Whatever struggles you're encountering, he sees you and he hears you. When you're dealing with the trauma of, of losing a child, a spouse, a loved one, and in public you're all stoic, and yet in the evenings at nighttime your, your tears wet your pillows, God sees you and he hears you. When you feel that your body is breaking down, the sickness is taking its toll, God sees you and he hears you. Or when you're being bullied at school or at work because you're different, or you don't fall in the norm that the society has decided, God sees you and he hears you. Or maybe like Hagar, you are carrying a burden that is becoming too much. Those who had committed to walk beside you and take care of you and be a partner in that journey have turned their backs on you and walked away. God sees you and he hears you. He is all you need. He is more than sufficient to meet all your needs, your wants, and your desires. He's full of grace and love. He is for you and he is not against you. So let him be your shelter and your fortress and your refuge. Well, let's turn, turn the page and move on to Abraham and Sarah. I hope you're okay if I call them Abraham and Sarah because even though they, they haven't been given this name yet, uh, it just rolls off the tongue much easier. Chapter 15 ends on this amazing note. This amazing note that we have with, a, with an amazing promise that God gives them. But then chapter 16 opens with a slightly different tone. Ten years have now passed between, uh, between the time that God gives the promise at the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16 when we start reading the, the, the passage again. We have no visibility into what happens in those 10 years. Uh, the Bible is completely silent. We do not know whether God kept visiting Abraham, but it is a safe assumption for us to say that if the Bible did not record it, then there was silence. The Bible does not record any interaction. But Abram and Sarah are waiting patiently. They're waiting expectantly for this promise to be fulfilled, for an heir to be born to them. But after 10 long years, they're still childless. The heir that was promised is nowhere in sight. And I'm not sure what we would expect them to do year after year, but year one comes to an end and there's still no child. Year two comes to an end and they're still childless. Year three, year four, year five, and still nothing. And one wonders how long it took them before they actually got to the point where doubt started to set in, whether the promise was going to be fulfilled or not. Uh, with every passing day, this, this, 
seed of doubt takes deeper root in their minds and in their lives. Ten years ago, they had received a gift, a gift of hope, and ten years later, it seems more like a cruel joke than an actual gift or a promise. How could God do this to them? They're probably wondering. He had been so faithful in all this time, and yet this promise was not being fulfilled. God's success rate up to that point had been 100%. But is this going to be the one instance where God doesn't come through? The seed of doubt was beginning to take root. This wasn't unbelief on their part. This was doubt. What's the difference between unbelief and doubt? I'm so glad you asked. Unbelief is a determined state of refusing to accept, refusing to believe. An unbeliever, even when the entire evidence is presented to them, still proclaims, I will not believe. Men like Richard Dawkins would be an example of that, who refuse to look for evidence, and even when they're presented with the evidence, they refuse to believe in the authenticity of the scriptures and the sanctity of what we believe and who Jesus Christ is. They will not believe. An unbeliever will not believe. But then there are men like Lee Strobel, for example, who earnestly look for evidence, and when they find the evidence, they believe. Doubt, on the other hand, is a question about what you believe. The prerequisite for doubt is that you must first believe. You must first believe before you can cast a shadow of doubt on it. The biggest, the best example in, in the scriptures is uh, the Apostle Thomas. You know, he's not called the unbelieving Thomas. He's called the doubting Thomas. He doubted that the risen Christ was in fact standing before him. He believed that Christ was going to rise from the grave. But he doubted that the person standing in front of him was the risen Christ. And as soon as he was presented with the evidence, when he saw Jesus' wounds, when he touched Jesus' wounds, his doubt was removed. He fell to his face and he called Jesus his Lord. Doubt is, being, is part of being a believer. The challenge, however, is what we do with that doubt. That's what we see Abraham and Sarah doing. That's what we saw in the Garden of Eden when Eve doubted what God's promise was, what God's direction was. She doubted it, and she sinned and rebelled. Abraham and Sarah do two things that we're going to talk about that are a result of doubt in our minds. Well, first and foremost, when we doubt, we act in impatience. We lose our patience for God's timing. It had been 10 years for Abraham and Sarah before, between the time that they were given the promise and they had not seen it being fulfilled. They decided that they'd had enough. They weren't going to wait for God anymore. They couldn't wait any longer. They were getting older. God's timing was not consistent with their timing. God's plan was not consistent with their plan. And so they decide that they're going to help God they step in front of God and do what they want to do. They chose to follow their timing rather than God's. 
You know, God doesn't operate on our schedule. He doesn't operate on our calendars or our agendas. His plans are perfect, including the timing of the completion of those plans. Abraham and Sarah acted in impatience when they decided to have a child through Hagar. And the irony of that whole situation is that even though Abraham has a son through Hagar, it is not the son that God had promised. Abraham's physical actions resulted in a physical outcome, but it was completely devoid of the spiritual blessing, the spiritual significance that was associated with God's promise. This was not the man, the boy, the son, through whom God was going to accomplish his purpose and his plan. When we act in impatience, when we are out of step with God's timing, when we try to hurry God along, we may achieve, we may achieve the outcome that we think God wants. We may achieve that outcome in the physical realm, but it will be devoid and completely empty of the blessing that we were supposed to receive from God through that promise. So the one thing that we do when we let seeds of doubt take root in our mind and we question God's plan is that we act in impatience. The second thing that Sarah and Abraham do, and we do as well, is that we act in violation of God's plan for, full, for fulfilling his purpose and his promise. In Abraham and Sarah's case, we see that they doubted God, they started to act impatiently, and in doing so, they violated their marriage covenant. In verse three it says, Sarah gave her maidservant Hagar to Abraham to take as his wife. I did some quick research and I couldn't find the right wording for the word that's translated as wife. So we'll take it at face value. Hagar was given to Abraham to be his wife. But all evidence, all the instances that we read, Hagar is not on equal footing with Sarah. She is still treated as her maidservant. She is still uh, perhaps better than a maidservant, but she is definitely not treated as a wife. It seems that this was a marriage of convenience. Sarah and Abram had wanted to help God along to get an heir for, to fulfill God's promise, and so they do what they think is best. You know, what they did was actually a very common practice in those times. Wealthy men who did not have an heir would marry a maidservant whose child would be adopted by the husband and wife. The surrogate mother, in most cases, will have no claim on this child after the birth. Uh, she, was, she was really no more than a womb for hire. Sometimes the child was taken without any further interaction with the mother, with the biological mother. Sometimes she was paid for her services. She was set up with a good living. Sometimes she would carry on as a child's nanny. And in some very rare instances, uh, she would be treated as a wife. But that does not seem to be the case for Hagar in this instance. So Abram and Sarah did what was common in the culture that they were a part of. They tried to use a worldly practice to achieve a spiritual result. This practice that they did was accepted, it was approved, it was endorsed, it was encouraged by the culture, 
but it was not in line with God's design for a union between a man and a woman. I think the parallels are, are far too obvious in our, in our present day. If we stay with the, with the theme of a man and a woman coming together, then God's design for that is, of course, marriage. One man, one woman who commit to each other before, before their families and before God and enter into a covenant relationship. But in our present-day culture, it is now perfectly accepted, it is approved, it is endorsed, and it is encouraged for two people to live together in an intimate relationship without entering into a God's plan of marriage. It is the expectation that you will do a proof of concept of whether the two of you can live together or not. The institution of marriage itself is being redesigned in our own image now. We label all manners of relationships as marriage. Uh, recently on, um, on, on one of the home renovation channels, there was a show about a, about a family that was looking for a new home to buy. And the family comprised of kids, of course, and three people who were in a marriage relationship. They labeled themselves as a thruple. After the episode had aired, the mainstream media applauded this channel for being progressive and for their openness to demonstrate their support for this unique relationship arrangement. The only challenge with that is that when we look at the Word of God, we see a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Abraham and Sarah followed a practice of their culture and tried to attain a spiritual outcome. What am I saying? When we doubt God and we attempt to accomplish His purposes in our life, in our own timing, and in our own means, we seldom, if ever, receive the blessing that was associated with that promise from God. So how do we, how do we resist doubt so that we are not falling into acting in impatience and acting in violation? How do we resist doubt from taking root in our thinking and our lives? You see, doubt flourishes when we lose trust. It's the same in every relationship. When a husband and wife, uh, when a husband or a wife think that their spouse is cheating on them or being dishonest with their money, the root of the problem is that they have lost trust in their spouse. The same is true in our walk with God. So the antidote for doubt is actually trust. Trusting God. Someone said that trust is the consistency of character established over a period of time. That is how we gain trust. That is how we give trust. Now, if we follow this definition, then our trust in God is established because of His consistent character over a period of time. We believe that God's character is unchangeable. He is the same He was yesterday, he is the same He is today, and He will be the same tomorrow. He never changes. There is consistency in His character. And as for time, we have 6,000 years of recorded history. 
of God's consistent character. That's just what we have recorded. I'm sure if you speak with your friends, other believers, you will see so many more instances of God's character consistently being the same year after year. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you can look on your own life. You can see markers along that journey that you can point to and say, I know that God was present. I know that God delivered. I know that God fulfilled his promise. You look at the number of years that you've lived, you look at the consistency of God's character, and you trust him that he will come through. The other thing that happens is that as we start to trust God and we place trust in his promises and his plans, we start to quantify and qualify our prayers by saying, Lord, this is my heart's desire, but not my will, but yours. Because we trust that what he is accomplishing is the best plan for our lives and the best purpose for our lives. If you're a young believer and you don't have decades or even years of experiencing God or having this, this, this view of his consistent presence in your life, listen to the stories of God's faithfulness within your circle of friends. Read testimonies of people who have experienced it, wrote it for others to be blessed with. God's faithfulness and trustworthiness is beyond question. Let me just conclude with these words as the worship team makes their way up to the, to the front. Let me just conclude with, uh, with this. We walk in the presence of the Lord as believers. We believe that his promises will come true, but when they don't, we begin to, to question. We begin to doubt his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. So when the seed of doubt takes root, we decide to assist God. We act impatiently. We try to do it our way. And in doing so, we may achieve the physical goals, but we seldom, if ever, receive the spiritual blessing. This blessing comes only when God is trusted, when God is exalted in all areas of our life. When we submit our plans to his will, God blesses those plans. Continuing to God trust every day stops the seed of doubt from taking root in our life. God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He will never fail you, and he will never forsake you. Let these words of reassurance bless you in the days to come. Amen.